0: Really clear labeling and transparency is in the best interest of everyone, you know, of the sponsoring brands, of the newsroom reporters who are doing great objective work and of the readers who need to understand clearly where their content's coming from.
1: More and more digital media outlets are turning to branded content as a source of revenue. Unfortunately, this can create confusion for some about where the line is between sponsored and editorial content. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Melanie Diesel is a brand storytelling consultant and the founder of Story Fuel, which helps teach marketers how to think like journalists. Melanie has been on a guest on our podcast a couple of times, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to check in with her about what's going on in the marketing world. Welcome back to the podcast, Melanie. Thanks for having me back. Well, we first spoke, uh, you know, I think uh, we met at an AAN conference, I think the one in Utah way back in 2014, and, and I invited you to come onto the podcast because you, know, you were you know, talking about you know, the business side of, uh, of journalism and, and marketing, and, and uh, I thought it would be kind of an interesting conversation. You know, Way back then, w- w- when you were first on the podcast, we, we talked a lot about native advertising, native content. How has that changed since 2014, or, or is it kind of all the same under the big branded content umbrella?
0: Yeah it's it's so funny we've we've managed to find a lot of ways to talk about the very same thing in a lot of slightly nuanced terms to refer to the same general sort of work. So yeah, native advertising at least for for those of us kind of in the publishing world generally refers to brand content that lives on a publisher's site, right? That's advertising that's native to a publisher's website or or print platform, I mean, you know, content that's being created or sponsored by a brand. For that same publisher audience. Brand content is often used in a slightly more general way to refer to any content a brand is creating, whether it happens to live on a publisher's platform or not. So brand content might be used to refer to stuff that lives on the brand's own website, on the brand's you know social channels. Maybe they're creating a, a video series, for example, on YouTube. So brand content is sort of the the more generalized term, you know, in a square rectangle sort of thing <laughs> where they're they're all not quite each other, but it's all under that same in that same family. So yeah, brand Content is the is the more general of the two terms, but yeah, we're we're talking about broadly the same thing, this idea of brands and, and marketers trying to adopt the benefits of storytelling as a way to communicate with their audience.
1: Okay, and this is not always just you know necessarily connected with a, a publication per se. It could be just you know this is the way that you know a business wants to present itself in 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 a form that looks sort of journalistic, you know, a series of stories, a series you know of videos that you know, kind of tell their story. Uh, and, and I think it's probably easier in that realm to sort of look at it and say, hey, oh, I understand that that's kind of editorial in a sense. It's just kind of when you get into the editorial side where you have publications who are, you know, have editorial content, but then also have this sort of branded, branded content, uh, this uh, native advertising in there where we kind of get this sort of muddy, you know, muddy line. So, you know, how do publications sort of demark generally to mark, um, you know, branded content from editorial.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because every publication does it slightly differently. There, there are some conventions, but there's a lot of variance, um, you know, not because folks are looking to deceive anyone, but because when we look at the design of some of our favorite publications anyway, there's variance there to begin with. So trying to find some unified way to denote that in, you know, in, 15 or 30 or 70 different article layouts is is difficult to do. But generally speaking, what the FTC recommends is that it be as clear and prominent as possible. So most publications try to have some level of disclosure in the URL itself. So you might see, for example, paidpost.nytimes.com on the New York Times, right? So if you're, you're seeing that URL anywhere, you'd see some sort of indication that this is not a regular New York Times link. At the top of the page on most of these publications, you'll see some sort of marker at the top that might say advertiser content, sponsor content, brought to you by with an advertiser logo. So something at the very top that's giving you an indication. What is below this comes from a partner or is created with a partner sometimes you'll find byline level disclosure so the byline might say you know by our brand content team right there might be a specific team named there or it might give the the byline to the brand itself so if you're on buzzfeed and you're seeing for example like a sponsored quiz or you know a brand provided a list of some kind generally that byline is going to say by Charmin or by Chase Bank, right? So they're trying to give as many signals as they can, you know, in those things that we all share, which is a a byline, hopefully a URL, and then something near the title at the top of the page. Beyond that, there's, there's a lot of options that, that some publications embrace. You might find, you know, sort of an italicized line of text, the way we might editorially use an editor's note or a correction, you know, sort of an italicized text at the very bottom or the very top. So, you know, there's, there's different conventions depending on what the layout of the particular site is, but I think most publications that I've worked with, most folks who work in brand content, everyone's trying to make sure that this is clear because if nobody knows who made it, no one benefits, right? It's not intending to trick anyone into thinking it's editorial. The whole point for the brand of, of sponsoring and creating this stuff is to get some sort of recognition for the work that they're doing.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of uh, important. You're able to draw this distinction that, that people understanding, you know, understand what content that they're they're getting and and how it's being, you know, presented to you. As a reader, so that you can understand you know that somebody 's trying to sell you something as opposed to something as being you know unvarnished editorial content, and you know one of the one of the things that some people cite as a contributing factor to the lack of trust that they 're seeing in the news these days is the prevalence of editorial stories passing as news stories, and you know so one would think you know you know following down that you know line of thinking. Uh, you know do you see a similar sort of thing with with branding this this sort of concern that uh, you know branding content sort of muddies the waters of you know the editorial content that's out there that you know make it harder for people to to figure out what it is they're reading
0: you know, I think it's a it's a really important discussion for us to have. My overarching feeling is that for those of us in the industry, we think about brand content all the time. I don't think it's quite as prevalent for our audience, you know, quite as top of mind for them. I don't think they're seeing it as often as we are. And so I don't think it poses as much of an imminent threat, the much more real Challenge for you know from a media literacy standpoint is is the very real challenge of people understanding when whether something is opinion or fact right whether it's editorial or news. I think that's something that they run into on a much more you know much more higher frequency. That's the kind of thing they're probably seeing on a on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day, needing to distinguish is this someone's opinion or is this factually reported news. And I think that becomes much more complicated in a broadcast environment, which is you know not my specialty. I focus generally on on, on digital and print content, you know, editorial news or or branded. But I think especially in a broadcast environment, it can be very difficult for our audience to understand who exactly they're hearing information from and whether it is opinion or, or reported fact. And I think that 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 inability to distinguish has made people skeptical, understandably so. They're not sure who to trust. They're not sure what their where their content's coming from. And so I can understand why some brand content would get swept up in that skepticism. It makes total sense to me. And I, I would I would expect that our readers should be skeptical. I think we're better off if they are skeptical, and if anything, it just sort of raises the bar for us to be even more transparent and even more clear to try to do our best to to settle some of those those fears and help them understand where we are coming from and and what exactly they're they're engaging with
1: right and it's funny because uh, you know the FCC requires you know if you've got an infomercial that you're you're putting on your radio station or if you're you know putting on TV very clear. Uh, you know, statements at the beginning throughout that, you know, this is a sponsored content of some sort, some sort an infomercial. So pe- people have, have grown to understand that. But, you know, once we get into, you know, print, and especially in, in the, digital realm, you know, I've, I've encountered, you know, I worked at a website where, you know, in, in the social media realm, we were posting stories and then we had, you know, the business marketing side of our operation was also posting their content on our page Seeing comments from people, oh, this is paid. This is not really matter. This isn't real, because it comes from the market. Or this is a sponsored story. This is not like a really news reported story. You know, what, what do you think of something like that?
0: Like I said, I can understand people's confusion, and and I've sort of seen the conversation from both sides. You know, I've. Because I, I came up as a journalist, that was sort of my background before I was on the the branded side of things. I can understand those concerns from, you know, from a newsroom or, or editorial perspective of thinking that the work that your brand content team or your business team may be doing is somehow confusing your audience and, and perhaps even having a negative effect on on the good work that you're doing, you know? And I think, you know, in my experience the folks who are working on these brand content teams many of them are former journalists we share that same fear you know many of us are trying to do our part to bring in new revenue that's going to support the work that we believe in that's happening in the newsroom, and so that breaks our heart just as much, you know, as it might break yours to see that it could possibly have a negative perception impact on the work that you're doing in the newsroom. So, again, you know, most of the folks that I've worked with across different brand content teams and different publications, the goal is transparency. We gain nothing by tricking someone into engaging with our content. Our brand partners that are, you know, paying us uh, gain nothing if no one knows where the content's coming from. So, one of the things that I beat that drum all the time is is really clear labeling and transparency is in the best interest of everyone, you know, of the sponsoring brands, of the newsroom reporters who are doing great objective work and of the readers who need to understand clearly where their content's coming from I think we're all sort of on the same side on that one. it's just difficult to figure out some universal system when the way we present even our regular content is is so varied and so distinct finding some universal labeling system has just proven to be a challenge
1: yeah and I certainly think there are things to be lo- that both the marketing side and the editorial side can teach each other and I'm not necessarily saying that you know that branded content is somehow less reported, less well-written, less researched. You know, it's quite often it's just as good, if not better, sometimes than than the content that you're getting from your reporting. Your, your, it's, it's just what the intent of it is, I guess, you know, making sure that you have that transparency. And I mentioned before about social media, when you think about how you, you try to communicate uh, with your audience and social media, I mean, you're using a lot of the same strategies that somebody who's trying to sell somebody something, you, you know, making it abs- accessible, uh, understanding your audience, you know, keeping it conversational. You know, I've had marketing people on the podcast talking about how to how to improve your, your social media presence. That's a realm kind of where the tone and your voice can resemble very much the marketer when really what you're trying to do is mark quote unquote market your, your editorial content.
0: There's certainly a lot of I don't want to call it gray area because I think that makes it sound like an ethical problem, but there's certainly a lot of overlap in the tasks and the tactics, you know, that that we're using on each side, and it's so interesting to me because I think this has changed so much over the last I guess I don't know social media has been around for a long time I used to say five years now it's more like and I guess but you know there was a point where as a journalist you could file your copy and then move on, right? That was sort of the end of your responsibility at that point. Whereas now it feels we're being asked to take much more ownership over the performance of that content. You know, how how many people are seeing that content? We're, we're being asked to curate an audience digitally, not just by creating good work that grows a fan base. And so in that way, we are kind of taking up a little bit of that torch of a marketer, of, of audience building, of audience development, of, of loyalty, right? Some of those same tactics, like you said, that, that are second nature to a marketer. And at the exact same time, marketers are realizing that just sort of shouting at people all the time is not going to cut it anymore, that there's this major overwhelm with our audience and the only way to cut through the noise is to do something that's worthy of people's time and attention and to do that oftentimes they turn to storytelling and so it's funny how we've sort of seen the light in some ways from each side right the values that the other side the the editorial side or you know the news side or the marketing side can bring the ways we can you know grab some of those skills and learn from one another to do our own new evolved job just a little bit better
1: Since you brought up the idea of of learning, I mean, one of the things that you do is you're you're teaching marketers how to think like like journalists. You know, why is that an important thing to do?
0: Well, you know, it's what I'm essentially trying to do is I'm trying to help marketers see that they can create content that's slightly more editorial in terms of its values and its quality, right? So I'm not trying to teach them to, to trick us or or you know pretend to be journalists, so to speak, but more so to see the value in something like having many sources, right? We as journalists understand the value of quoting multiple sources, of finding experts that can weigh in on your content to give it credibility and to, in some ways, take your own opinions out of the content. So talking about how those things can help marketers bring credibility into their content, you know, making sure that their content isn't just because I said so, but that they're bringing in other important, relevant expert voices. So things like that, that may be second nature to us, you know, is... It's kind of in everyone's best interest the marketers are going to have an easier time creating connections with people they're going to have an easier time getting that content to perform well for them right it's much easier to turn a six into a ten than a two into a ten you get to use a lot less resources if you you start a little closer to the finish line so helping them create better content that people are actually going to want to read or engage with or learn from or laugh with you know so things like reputable sources, things like asking if the content is truly unique, right? You know, we've all had that editor who says, why do people care? Or that's not enough. Or we've told that story before, you know, a good editor will push you to find the something special, right? To find that little seed of something different in a story that might seem the same. And that's not the kind of thing they teach you as a marketer. You know, when you're telling a story or writing a press release, you know, often the reason is because I feel like saying it and that's not quite enough for our audience as, as marketers. So taking a lot of those best practices that we learn in J school and just applying them in a marketing context, The feedback that I'm getting when I'm I'm running corporate workshops or, or speaking at, you know, marketing conferences is that this is a totally different way of thinking for a lot of marketers. That to think in that audience first sort of way that we're trained as journalists can really transform the way they bring messages into the marketplace. And my hope is that if we're doing more of that, putting the audience at the center, hopefully we'll all be better off for it yeah and the nice thing
1: about this is you' there, actually there, there are a number of nice things about it. one is I mean, if you 've got a brand uh, an editorial brand that that people identify with that uh, that you cover a certain area really well and they come to your website to to get that content you know if you if you start folding into that branding you know content well one you 're monetizing something that that should be of interest to your your audience you're bringing in them content that's going to help enrich their experience in your website, but at the same time, it's also going to enrich your, your bottom line a little bit. And so, you know, for me, that that's kind of one of the neat things about branded content in, in the digital space. You know, certainly there are all these, you know, transparency issues, but the idea is as a storytelling device to sort of serve a larger, you know, means, you know, where, I think we all understand the old advertising model that, you know, if, if you've got a running magazine and, and you, you, you're you selling advertising to a shoe manufacturer, well, you know, why not create content that's sponsored by the shoe manufacturer? That's not necessarily rah-rah shoe manufacturer, but, you know, maybe it's a, you know, you're interviewing an athlete who who wears those shoes and they talk about why they use, use those shoes. You know, you're, you're giving them interesting content, that, you know, enriches the experience on the website, but also, you know, trades on the brand a little bit.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I always encourage the brands to do is to find opportunities to educate too, right? Because in so many ways, that's what we're doing in the newsroom, right? Is we're trying to teach our audience something. And I think brands, many times, they do have valid expertise in a particular area. Like this example you gave, it would be good to hear from maybe the shoe designer to understand why certain shapes or types of shoes are good for certain types of runners or injuries right that would be of service to the audience you know surely ultimately helping them hopefully make a purchase of our product but at the end of the day you know also helping people to understand how to make that better choice what the design or the the shape might have to do with their comfort and their ability to to continue to do the sport that they enjoy you know so that's always my encouragement is to find an area where you could take your company's expertise and share that with people. That's going to be sometimes the most objective way you can bring value to an audience. Yeah. And it
1: doesn't always have to be so blatantly, you know, about the company. I mean, you know, you see it all over the place in, in, you know, like sporting events or something like a, you know, some company, the, the official, whatever of, 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 major league baseball, you know, just associating yourself with whatever the particular content is, whatever the story is, But as you said, educating and providing information. So we first talked in in, in 2014. Have things changed a lot in the last five years, do you think?
0: I think there's some sort of perennial conversations that always come up, right? I mean, we're still talking about are we scared of the impact that big companies like Facebook and Google have, right? They might have a few more companies in their portfolios now. They may have rebranded, but it's still that same sort of conversation about the power they have over the traffic we receive and the way we reach our audience. That's always scary, right? Having some of that out of your control. I think we're still having conversations about how we measure things that we do, because as we talked about before, there are a lot of different platforms. There are a lot of different social media platforms now, and new one's coming all the time, a lot of different standards for the way we measure things. And so trying to constantly evolve and get a handle on, well, what is a view? How do we quantify a view? Is it one second? Is it three seconds? Is it 15 seconds? Do they have to be fully in the screen? Can they be partially looking at the screen? We sort of have these ongoing conversations about the way we measure and evaluate the success of the things we create. So, I think some of those conversations are, are always on, so to speak. They're, they're never going anywhere. I do think what's new is there's a slightly different attitude toward content, at least from what I perceive, than there was five years ago. I think when we talked the first time, those of us working in branded content in, in native advertising were very much in a position where we had to convince brands that content was something worth creating. We had to convince them that yes, you should tell a story instead of just buying a banner and yes, you should, you know, back away from your product and talk about other other things that are of value to you and, and to your audience. And I think we're not so much in that situation anymore. I think most often brands now see and recognize the importance of telling stories. They sometimes come with their own stories in mind, although, you know, maybe not the final story we take to print or to publish, but they're a little bit more advanced in terms of understanding the value of storytelling, understanding the value of creating content for their audience, of of educating them or entertaining them. And now it's a little bit more of a collaboration rather than convincing them. And from a creative standpoint, that's a much better place to be because you feel like you've got folks on your team. You feel like you've got access to more resources and ideas. And so I think we're seeing you know, it's a little bit less of a fight to make good work. And I think that's kind of a good sign for all of us.
1: Yeah. And I think people understand that, you know, being content adjacent, you know, you know, having your brand there with, with something that, that's going to create value in your audience is really kind of appealing, I guess, to these outlets. I want to sort of track back on, on some of these, these you know, ongoing conversations that, that you sort of alluded to around, you know, metrics what are the metrics that, that seem to be the, the ones that most people are looking at to measure whether a, a campaign is successful or not?
0: I think this is one of those things that we, we don't have a ton of consensus on, but I think broadly speaking, you're going to make those decisions based on a few things. First, on the format of the content itself, You know, the way we might measure a video is going to be different than the way we measure an article just by nature of the way we interact with those content pieces. So the first thing you want to figure out you know is what exactly are we presenting and what are the ways in which we can measure that so you know if we were working with an article for example it would be very similar to the way we look at success from you know a news or editorial standpoint you know how many views did that get what was the engagement or the conversation around that the comments the likes the shares you know things like that the feedback on social media the same way we would look at it sort of from a from a news standpoint to see how it was performing if you're looking at a, at a video, you know it's a slightly different conversation. You can think about how many plays did the video get, how many views, how long did people view the video, either total or on average. Oftentimes, we're looking at you know percentage completion rates. So you know how did they complete 25% of the video, x percent of the time, or 50% of the video, x percent of the time. So you know it can get it can get a little nitpicky just because of the ways in which we're able to measure something like video, especially digitally. Of course, you know. Print is is kind of, we're left with circulation for the most part when we're looking at print content, which is why brands tend to prefer digital, often just because it allows them more of that measurability. At a broader level, oftentimes these campaigns fall into one of three categories. It's an awareness campaign, which means they just want people to see it. They want people to be aware of it they may be trying to just measure things like page views or impressions just eyeballs essentially it could be an engagement campaign which is that we want someone to, to be taking action with our content so that maybe that's page views or video views we want them to complete a quiz or you know spend much time with a particular article or piece of content we might measure the time on page for example or it's a conversion piece of content, that third one. So it could be conversion, in which case we're trying to get them to take some subsequent action beyond the content, whether that's a sale, a download, a sign up, a tour, add to cart, whatever that might be. That is much less frequently the goal of content, I think, than people might expect. I think when people think of branded content, they think of conversion, right? They think of something asking you to buy the shoe or download something. Most often the best content and, and the majority of the content we see tends to be awareness or engagement where it is much more editorial and in, in sort of its spirits, right? It's not asking for the sale, so to speak. It's more about informing or engaging or entertaining the audience. But I think especially in a news context, we see conversion content much less frequently because brands don't have a natural place for conversion in a news context. That's not what we're used to there. Where we do see that is in more of a lifestyle magazine context. So the example I always give is, you think of a women's magazine, right? Even if you're looking at only editorial and and uh, you know news content, so to speak, it almost always includes brands anyway, right? It's telling you what products to buy, how to style them, what the trends are, right? Brands are all over that kind of content, you know, even without sponsorship. And therefore, when we're in that kind of environment, to have a brand saying, here's our choice for the three lipstick colors you need to buy this fall, it's much less out of place it's not so jarring for readers to have a brand talking to them in that environment because brands have a place in that environment. So we do see some conversion content. It just tends to be in those much more brand safe environments like lifestyle magazines where brands have a natural place to begin with. But for for those of us working in a news context, you know, a news magazine, newspaper, website, the conversion content is just, it's not happening as often.
1: Yeah, and uh, there's an expectation, you know, what a particular outlet you're going to is, is to what experience that you're going to have. That, you know, if you're going to, as you said, to like a women's magazine where there are more brands, yeah, your expectation is you're going to be encountering those within the content, whether it's editorial or brand focus. The other thing you kind of mentioned, you touched on with social media, Facebook. How frustrating is it that you, you can't just post something on Facebook and you know you, X number of people are going to see it?
0: I have a hard time getting upset about it. I can understand the frustration of, of building an audience and wanting to reach them, but I think on some level, we've always known it was rented land, and so... You know, if, you, if you're not paying, then you are the product, right? And so, we had to know at some point, and, and we talked about this, we, we, we all saw it coming, we just hoped it didn't, right? That we'd have to pay to get that reach, that we were going to be the products on that platform. So, I can understand it from a business standpoint. I think it's frustrating as a creator, you know, editorial or otherwise, to not be able to reach your audience But I do think it kind of underscores the value of some of the ways where we don't have as much of a middleman in reaching our audience. You know, people who are running independent email lists that are able to communicate with their audience that way. There's a lot of ways to kind of connect with your audience. You know, the old school RSS feeds to your blog, you know, those things that, you know, we sort of left by the wayside when shiny new social came around are now some of the the easiest ways to have consistent contact with your audience without that middleman in between. So it kind of, it kind of forces us to return back to basics and be a little more strategic.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's important too. uh, you have campaigns that, that have people sign up for your newsletter, et cetera. Uh, or whatever services that you you develop, develop these lists that you can market directly to them because they've expressed an interest in, in in receiving that content. I I know that this isn't strictly um, marketing or or branded content, but I want to sort of get your, your, your take on it. You're, I take it. You're familiar with Taboola, you know, where there'll be like at the bottom, maybe a, a bottom of a story page, there'll be a bunch of windows of, of different types of ads of, um, Editorial type content, and then mixed into that, maybe editorial content. You know, a few stories from whatever, whatever the publication is. What what are your thoughts on that? As far as you know, we were talking before about transparency. Do you think that that type of platform can sort of muddy the waters for people and sort of present in it maybe an image that a more news focused uh, website might not be comfortable with?
0: Yeah. So the units you're talking about, we call them recirculation units. So there's Taboola, Outbrain, Zergnet, you know, there's a, there's a ton of brands that are companies that, that offer this service. Exactly. Like you said, you know, you may also like, or similar content or more about science, right? These kind of units that recommend you know, three to five articles in a carousel. I I think as a concept, it makes sense, right? We love recommendations. I think we've all experienced that in some form online where you're watching a video and a similar one comes up and you are genuinely interested. It's done a good job or, you know, you're looking at a book on Amazon that you you really want to buy and a similar book comes up and it is something you're interested in because it's been well targeted to you. I think the challenge with these particular units is that they're done very cheaply, right? So the it's very cheap to buy many, many impressions in this environment. And what happens is when that cost comes down, you have sort of less savory characters buying their way in there, which is why you see oftentimes, you know, this crazy trick will drop 20 pounds of belly fat in five hours or something, you know, appearing in that same thing, or celebrities you didn't know were dead that, you know, actually aren't dead. So, you know, you start to get that kind of low quality content because people are taking advantage of a cheap stream of traffic. What happens is when those sort of unsavory characters buy their way into this, you know, otherwise efficient environment, it becomes less brand safe. So you're less likely to see, you know, good editorial content appearing there. You're less likely to see reputable news content appearing there. You're less likely to see what you alluded to before, even the sort of high quality, well-reported brand content, because they don't want to be alongside the dead celebrities and the belly fat, right? So it sort of clears out some of the stuff that would otherwise carry that sort of thing, you know, carry it up. And so you end up with a lot of lower quality content that can sometimes fill those units. And that does leave kind of a bad taste in the mouth of your readers. If they're seeing that, and that's the perception they get. So it reminds me a little bit of do you remember the early days of banner ads when all the ads were the games that were trying to trick you into clicking on it, right? Punch the boxer 50 times or, you know, uh, whack a mole style games where they were really just trying to trick you into clicking on it. And then we sort of had the pendulum swing back the other way. Now there are good quality banner ads, you know, whether we click on them or not, <laughs> who knows. But They're a little more authentic, transparent, and genuine in terms of this is an ad and we're telling you something, as opposed to kind of sneakily tricking you into clicking on a particular pixel. So, you know, I think that I hope that we'll have the pendulum swing back that way because I think recommendation is something as users that we actually do really appreciate and it can be incredibly valuable for surfacing things you might not otherwise find. I think unfortunately just sort of the market forces have filled it at this particular point with a lot of lower quality content and until some of that's cleared out, the higher quality content will be afraid to live there and kind of raise that bar so hopefully we'll have some correction at some point and we could start using those as they were intended.
1: Melanie, I think I could talk to you for another hour, but I don't have time to talk to you for another hour today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We'll stay in touch and you know talk to you maybe a little sooner than than every two or three years. Okay.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of It's All Journalism. As a reminder, we're currently running a survey on our website. We We want to know what technology you're using to help improve your workflow. If there's a program or an app or some tool that you're using that you just can't do without and you want to share what that is with other journalists, let us know. Go to itsalljournalism.com, fill out the survey, and if you do, we'll send you an It's All Journalism mug, coffee mug, while supplies last. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell.